This show is proudly sponsored by Salamantech's point-of-sale devices and software. Tired of all the headaches dealing with cryptocurrency? You don't know what a private key is? You don't want to deal with exchanges? Well, if you're a business and you just want to run your business without thinking about cryptocurrency headaches, look no further than Salamantex. We provide point-of-sale software that allows you to get paid in fiat currency, that's euros, allowing your customers to pay in cryptocurrency, that's BTC, ETH, and a host of others. Dark Side of the Hoddle Moon proudly uses the audio services of Eye of the Sound. Beyond the amazing sound production, they've really been a sounding board, pun intended for our show, giving us great customer support and constructive criticism and feedback. So if you want a little bit more personalized attention you're not going to get from a bigger provider, check out iTheSound.com. And we're back to the Dark Side of the Moon Hodlecast. I'm Blockade here with Josh Igo, and today we're kind of kind of going going to a deep dive on you know money, gold, crypto, and the future of money. So I'm really excited, and I think that's a big reason a lot of people got into cryptocurrency originally is because of money, um, gold-backed currencies, and how it got off gold, and people looking for a solution. And a lot of people think that Bitcoin was that new solution. So uh, let's get into it, Josh. What do you say? Sounds interesting. Looking forward to this episode. It should be really cool. Yeah, we're both big cryptocurrency guys. And um, I think the first part, I want to bring some highlights out of this book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. It's a very famous book. Um, A lot of crypto people have read it. Um, It's been endorsed by everyone from Willie Nelson to Ron Paul to Robert Kiyosaki of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I think we're just going to hop up to, um, for our U.S. listeners and people who are familiar, um, the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913. And the book says that um, this is not common knowledge and not everyone agrees, but it was to create a banking cartel and eliminate competition but the way they put it out in the press was it's going to you know prevent runs on the banks and all these other stuff but really the reason they did it is because bankers and businessmen wanted to force interest rates down and to do this they had to disconnect it from gold and make it more plentiful and it really turned out to be a bailout for the bankers it helped certain businessmen but it really didn't help um the normal person um josh did you know anything about that yeah i've um i've watched a documentary series called the money masters which is uh heavily inputted by uh, edward griffin who is the author of that book the money masters is about four hours documentary by a historian and it covers jekyll island to a decent degree, so I understand it's 
the uh, founding of the Federal Reserve, which is neither federal nor a reserve of anything. It's about as federal as Federal Express. Mm -hmm. I think, um, yeah, that's what I know about it. But let's get into some of the meat of the book. Yeah, well, um, this is kind of covered in the book, and it's kind of common knowledge is that um, after that, um, there were some issues, and FDR wanted to really spend like crazy, but he couldn't because at that time, I believe the dollar was 40% backed by gold and they just completely, you know, ripped up the rule book and confiscated all the gold and basically turned it into a semi-fiat currency. Um, Josh, did you know that um, from, I believe, 1930s to sometime in the 1970s, it was illegal for Americans to own gold? I did, I did not know. I didn't know it was illegal to own gold. I thought that actually we were still on the some kind of a gold standard until the 70s, Bretton Woods. But yeah, yeah well, well, about that. well, that's true. But the uh, citizens were required to turn in their gold and they got gold certificates back. And then they were never able to redeem those gold certificates. Mm. Um, and How yeah, about that, jewelry and things like that? Was that exempt? I think that might have been exempt. Like so he's you know, talking about gold bullion, bullion bull, bars, and things yeah, like that. bullion okay. coins, silver, uh, yeah, all kinds of stuff. So yeah, let's um, jump up. We're gonna kind of do a little time traveling today. Let's jump up to what you mentioned, nineteen seventy-one, and that is when we went off the gold standard. Um, do you know how many dollars? We're pegged to an ounce of gold when we went off the gold standard. Oh man, I don't even want to guess. But take a take a wild guess. Okay, let's just say a thousand dollars. I have no, no idea. No, when we went off the gold standard, it was thirty-five dollars to an ounce of gold. And do you know approximately what the gold spot price is now? I don't actually. I'm not a gold bug, so I've I think it's around fifteen hundred dollars, but I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's a little over 1400 right now. So between when we went off the gold standard and the current spot price, it's a three th almost a 4,000% increase. So mm. so things have really changed. And um, I think that's one reason a lot of people get into crypto. So now I want to uh, maybe time travel all the way back and kind of talk about the history of money and how it's changed you know, over the millennia. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's really important to understand. Yeah. yeah, and I think even people that are really knowledgeable in crypto and finance, maybe they don't understand like the history of money and how it's changed over time. And let's just start from the very beginning. Um, probably the first type of money was actually barter. Um, you'd give something with intrinsic value for something else of intrinsic value. I think in uh, uh, these ancient times, it was there was a kind of a scarcity problem so it was usually food like i'm going to give you 10 coconuts for three fish or i'm going to give you two chickens for a sack of potatoes um that seems pretty simple right yeah that's uh, very simple it's very straightforward the allocation of resources is how you know we started uh, trading and then we devised other schemes to replace trading so i think we're going to go down um, the logical timeline of how uh, we progressed into a capitalist society. So let's yeah. keep going. Yeah, and the next one is going to be commodity money. 
So this is similar to barter, but a little bit different. Usually there'd be some sort of standard account. It would be, um, you know, maybe a bag of rice in Asia or a couple chickens in Europe. And everything would be um, measured in some sort of account of some sort of commodity. So like it would be two chickens or a sack of rice. Um, the barter thing, it could have been anything, but in this case, it was commodity money. So the money had some sort of value and it was usually food. Um, so that seems pretty simple. And actually, I thought this was a little interesting tidbit. Um, if you get out your uh, dictionary, pecuniary means pertaining to money. It's actually derived from pecunia, which is Latin for cow. So we kind of see the history of, of how this has changed. And sometimes there were things that weren't a commodity money, but it was pretty rare. Like sometimes there'd be like colored seashells or certain stones, but they really had no intrinsic value. Josh, would you largely agree with that? Do you have anything to add? Yeah, of course. Um, I think we were talking off air about some of the influences that we've had um, shaping our worldview in terms of economics and actually there's a great video on youtube that you can watch that really can help you understand how an economy works and grows and it's actually called how an economy grows and why it doesn't by uh, peter schiff's father so if you want to go and watch that and check it out it's really interesting and i think that that um starts off with basically some guys that are trying to catch fish every day and then how it changes into a full um, island society with like lots of different trade and a diversified economy. It's quite an interesting storybook. So that's a pretty interesting um, book I would recommend. Uh, it's actually been transferred from a book into like a, a video. Someone reads it out loud on it's uh, the channel V for voluntary library. Nice. If you're interested, that's cool. Definitely, yeah, it's yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. Irwin Schiff is definitely a, a hero of mine, too. And actually, for those who don't know, he was actually the father of Peter Schiff, who, you know, we like, but he's also not hot on crypto, which is maybe where we part ways. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, let's go to the next one, which most people are familiar with. So it went from barter to commodity money, usually using food, sometimes shells. And then it went to metal as money. And this really started at the dawning of the Bronze Age. And originally, it, was, it wasn't originally gold. It might have been bronze or iron or steel. All these things had value for tools, for weapons, for armor, and it was originally determined by weight. So this is where it was kind of standardized. And the advantages of metal is that it's intrinsic. And another thing is it's not disposable. Unlike, you know, chickens or potatoes that are go bad, you can kind of hold on to this and it is kind of a store of value. And also it was divisible. And it was more portable. Mm. So do you, do you have anything to add to that as metals is money? No, nothing to add. You've covered the bases there. Like there have been different ways to um, to devise how to have a form of a store of value that's, you know, transferable and uh, recognized by everybody in the system. If you go back to 
the Money Masters documentary, the Money Masters, the four-hour documentary, it's pretty old. They have an example about yardsticks, about how people used to use this stick that would have different notches on it to um, calculate what people owed each other. So I think that metal money is much more, um, well, it <clears throat> makes more common sense, especially because it's not going to be uh, easily damaged like a, a piece of wood might be. And you can uh, transfer it and carry it around easily. So that's one of the founding um, points of money, really, is that yeah. it's, it's easy easy to use and it's uh, easy to uh, transport around, which is like obviously brilliant about cryptocurrency. And nice. Bitcoin. And how did they mark the yardstick? Did they cut notches in it or use yeah. a piece of rope or... They did. They used to. They used to make different notches into the the yardstick to basically show uh, debts that have been paid and debts that were owed. Um, obviously, this could be um, open to abuse because you have to trust the yardstick to mm -hmm. be accurate. And obviously, there could be foul play. Now, that's another thing about uh, metal money is that it's relatively difficult to. Um, manipulate however you did used to get uh well let's i was going to say unscrupulous but let's say uh enterprising people that would um you know slowly but surely grind away at the coins get a fraction of a coin um smelted off it and then you'd let's say your hundred coins passed your path and you just shaved off a, a hundredth of a coin you could smelt those shavings together to make a new coin, and that's what happened. And that's where you started to get the dilution of um, the value of uh, different coins. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I guess you could say the uh, yardstick earlier than paper was kind of an early form of a public ledger, but maybe not immutable. It just takes yeah, a little cut to change it, right? Yeah, that, so it shows like how these um, <laughs> principles were being established that have now become like um, a key fundamental part of uh, what cryptocurrency is. Definitely. And yeah, and um, we talked about how it started out as bronze and iron and maybe steel, and then gold kind of became supreme. And there's really no special reason why gold was supreme. Um, some people say it's maybe the right amount. It's a little bit less than silver and a little bit more than platinum. You know, the mining rate stayed pretty stable. But yeah, people also use silver and gold, but gold seemed to be just the right amount, just the right size. But yeah, really any metal could have been used as a currency. Yeah, that's right. And any, any rare um, <clears throat> any rare commodity or anything that's not sorry, commodity, any rare aspects could be like shells could be used in an economy mm -hmm. that's used in the example of um erwin schiff's story how an yeah. economy grows yeah and like you mentioned um there were unscrupulous people um and actually i think the term they called was coin clipping and actually that's actually the reason why coins have ridges on the edges is mm. so so you could see whether or not the coin had been clipped that was yeah. one like anti, um, I guess, clip coin clipping measure. And yeah, they'd also debase the currencies. A lot of times the government would do that. They would blend in non-precious metals with the silver or gold. But people knew that these debased coins weren't as valuable. So they would hoard the old ones 
and use the use the new ones because they're forced to use it because of you know old legal tender laws but the people weren't happy about it now in the u.s have they um i mean just thinking about money now to counterfeit money is fairly difficult you know with um especially paper money i don't know in, in the u.s if this has happened but in the united kingdom they've adopted what actually first happened, as far as I know, in Australia, which is changing the paper notes to plastic notes. They're much more durable. You can put them in the washing machine, for example. If you've ever put like a five pound note in your pocket and then put the jeans in the washing machine and then realized afterwards then your five pound note could be destroyed. But now it's actually kind of waterproof and tamper proof. I've got a 10 pound note in my hand, uh, Bank of England. Um, and there's quite a lot of different security elements in. Now, I've just traveled from Korea to the UK for the vacation that I'm having right now. And during the currency exchange, I was given lots of 50-pound notes um, from the Korean bank. And actually, in the United Kingdom, many, uh, many stores and shops, they don't really like accepting 50-pound notes because mm -hmm. if you're going to forge a note, then it's going to be the, the most uh, valuable one because it's basically a return on your time invested mm -hmm. in forging. So every time that I go in the shop, the people get out the counterfeit pens and scribble all over them. Um, it's quite funny. But I was just wondering, in the United States, has um, you know the have the notes progressed? Because one of the things that are different in, in uh, England is the 5, the 10, the 20, and the 50-pound notes are all of a different color and size. Mm -hmm. Yeah, why? The last thing I know, well, I was just wondering, the last thing I heard was that all the U.S. notes were the same size, and the only difference was the faces on them, and then the, you know, the the actual num numerical amount, the, the nominal amount on the on the note. Yeah, well, they've they've updated them. I don't know exactly when they updated them, but the new ones are pretty tough. They've got like this thread going through them. They've got a pen you can write on them. They've got a hologram on them, and mm. also. They've got a bunch of other security me measures that are classified that no one knows exactly what they are. So um, that's another thing. But yeah, I think nice. um, I think it used to be common before they updated it. But now I think it's pretty hard. Um, it doesn't make sense to, to try and counterfeit the paper money. I think mm -hmm. more common is like, you know, credit card fraud and, you know, stealing people's credit card numbers and trying to get into people's bank accounts. That seems more of a, a better return on investment if you're some sort of criminal to just try and get into the digital accounts, which are a lot easier to gain access to than to try and make some fake money. Yeah, that's for sure. So, uh, yeah, that was a little bit of a segue. Sorry about the coin talking oh. bit. I just thought about it. No like, worries. Yeah. I know. Right. I, I, I had that in my notes, too. And, uh, yeah, I think places where it is common, like I know in South America, it's pretty common. Like if you're a foreigner teaching English, you get paid in like some fake currency and you try and, you know, return it or pay with it. And then you get in trouble because, yeah, I think in some countries that is an issue, but probably not so much in the U.K., uh, the Eurozone and the US. And um, I also wanted to bring it back that, you know, although we had this, you know, as we're going through the timeline here, we had metal is money, and then we're kind of going into paper money. There are times when people still barter, they or they use commodity money, I would say. So in jails, that's pretty common. Um, in World War II, this was actually pretty common. Um, 
especially um, at, towards the end of the war in Europe, in Germany, and other places, um, cigarettes were in very high demand. And really, the only people that had them were U.S. soldiers. Mm. So, so one cigarette would be like loose change, and then a carton and um, a packet of cigarettes would be considered, you know, larger units of currency. And mm. even with this, we saw an equilibrium. So when they're really valuable, um, soldiers would exchange them for, you know, certain services or chocolate or food or alcohol. Um, but if the market was flooded, the soldiers would rather just smoke the cigarettes. That's what they originally for. But if they got too high in value, they would exchange them for other goods. So, I mean, with anything, the market always seems to find an equilibrium. Mm, it does, yeah. All right. So then and in between that, there was uh, there were different ways that people would use uh, paper money, right? So originally paper money was almost like an IOU. Mm -hmm. You could treat that um, IOU as something you could later cash in for actual gold or silver. Sterling, yeah, right? so, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, actually, that was the next thing on my list here. So I just wanted to give you... Um, and our listeners, a little stat, I think it might surprise you and our listeners. So this is when the U.S. was on the gold standard. Um, in 1913, the average annual wage was $633, and the exchange value of gold was $20.67. So the average worker made about 30.6 ounces of gold a year. and hmm. If you go see what 30.6 ounces of gold is a year, this um, in 2019, that's about $44,000. So we've seen that gold has really maintained its value, you know, with maybe like a 1%, 2% increase per year because of the U.S. productivity. So I thought that was a pretty interesting stat. Yeah, it really has. I mean, I think in the U.S., the... I don't know what the uh, average income is per person, but I think the household, the median household income is about $51,000. That's across all states combined. Mm -hmm. So it is very close to what they were getting before. But then bear in mind, um, in 1913, it was probably just an individual person bringing in all the money, whereas these days most households have two incomes. So it's something to consider. It's pretty interesting. I think uh, gold has definitely kept its value relative to fiat currency, paper currency. Yeah, definitely. And um, yeah, and then I want to jump back. And when the U.S. gained independence, um, it was actually interesting. They knew that gold and silver were real money. And actually... Thomas Jefferson wanted the Spanish silver dollar to be the nation's official monetary unit. And it was officially 371.25 grains of fine silver. And that is something you're never going to see today is um, another country wanting to use um, gold or silver as currency or another country's currency. Although there are some small countries that use the U.S. dollar as their official currency. Well, yeah, I think this um, is interesting. Which president was that? Jefferson, did you say? Jefferson, yeah. This was. I think this was before he was president. I think this was right after um, we bayoneted all the redcoats and 
yelled YOLO freedom. First time or was it after, before before uh, the 1812 war or was it the, the War of Independence? Yeah, I, yeah, I want to say it was um, right after 1776. All right. Okay, cool. And um, there was another, there has been a few U.S. presidents, but uh, there's one particular stands out and it's John Adams. You know, he said, I killed the bank on his tombstone because he, he fought quite strongly against what he saw as a, like a banking cartel, which very much is in line with um, the creature from Jekyll Island, the book that we started with in the first place, because there's been an ongoing, one could say, conspiracy um, that central bankers have known that, you know, if you control a nation's uh, finances, then you can basically write its laws. In fact, it was one of, uh, I think it was Mayor Rothschild that was famously quoted as saying that. Now, a Rothschild banking family, um, they are still influential. I don't really necessarily believe all the conspiracy uh, theories, but they definitely are a very wealthy banking uh family and also trust and um one of the uh, oldest rothschilds famously said that quote which is of oh, peter again um give me the ability to write um the nation's like bank give, let me control the banking and uh, i can write the laws i don't really care about who is in charge because i'm basically in charge so yeah yeah actually i think it's something like uh paraphrasing it uh, allow me the power to issue the nation's currency and i care not who writes the laws or something like that yeah exactly so um this is going back a long long time ago and like these guys made a ton of money by basically breaking the the banks in in london by um getting their stooges in france to say that we'd lost the war against napoleon um Everyone panic selling everything. They bought up the whole market. And then the very next afternoon when they got the real news that, you know, the Brits had won, then the, the market pumped they had like a mega pump and they owned all of the all of the uh, all of the stocks. So that's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, informa information is power. Yeah. They had they were able to get information and uh, news before even the governments were. Yeah. So they leveraged that hard and then. That's how they established their wealth, and then they created a lot of banks, and um, uh, they, you know, they made them appear to be separate, not working together, not um, try to be in the kind of in the view of for the good of the nation, but in many respects, they are private banks set up for the good of the banking um, owners, which is. Uh, what we're getting back to here, which is this uh, creature from Jeff uh, Jekyll Island uh, stuff, which is, uh, you know, the uh, what is Jekyll Island? It's an island in some which part of, of the United uh, States? Brooklyn? I or something? I yeah, remember. I want. I want to say that was in. I want to say it's Georgia. I think it was like a hunting lodge, and then um, they did some part. Most of the meetings were down there, I think, and they also think they had some secret meetings in New Hampshire. Um, but yeah, it's funny you mentioned John John Adams battling the banks. Actually, if you read uh, this book we've been uh, referencing, The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve, you'll realize that actually the 1913 Federal Reserve was not the first um, like central bank in the U.S. They've been created and fell apart or been defeated through um, 
people who have had the balls to take him on, like John Adams and uh, I want to say Andrew uh, Andrew Jackson, I think, um, and a few other people. So yeah, it's uh, people have always known they've been bad. I think. I think, um, you know, 150, 200 years ago, this was common knowledge. And now people think, oh, they're the greatest thing in the world. That's what's making the economy humming when it's the complete opposite. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, now, I often, often think it's a bit like a conspiracy theory, but, you know, there's an element of truth to all of these things, um, a large dose of truth. Um, and it's important to know that, you know, these are based on facts. But I also do think that, in some respects, banks have been helpful, and they just need to modernize. So, I don't think we'd have such a dynamic economy without like really good, uh, you know, financial instruments that we've been able to utilize over the past century, especially with so many people becoming so wealthy relatively to you know entire history thanks to you know, the access to capitalism. Some people could say that it's not exactly pure capitalism. It's more like um, cronyism. But anyway, yeah, I'm, an aside. I, yeah, know. I mean, I might have to disagree with you there. I think um, in some places people are thriving in spite of the banks, in spite of the central banks. Maybe they're, they're not as bad in the U.S., but when you look at all the places where it's gone completely upside down, like Venezuela, I think people would rather be in control of a money that's uh, – not in, as inflatable and just can't be printed ad nauseum by uh, some crazy uh, dictator or someone who doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just looking at Google. It's, um, I Googled John Adams and, you know, the first link that comes up on Wikipedia is the bank war, um, <clears throat> which is pretty interesting from 18... Uh, 29 to 1937 and it might be andrew jackson actually yeah he had a big he had a big uh stake in it too and actually let's uh let's jump in here because um i want to kind of transition a little bit i want to talk about going off the gold standard and the u.s dollar and it being um kind of the reserve currency and i'm just gonna read like like a one page excerpt from the book i think it's kind of page 93 and 94 and I think it's really interesting, and it puts things in perspective, and then I want to get your take on it. All right. All right. When the dollar was separated entirely from gold in 1971, it ceased being the official IMF world currency and finally had to compete with other currencies, primarily the mark and yen, on the basis of its relative merit. From that point forward, its value increasingly became discounted. Nevertheless, it was still the preferred medium exchange of exchange. The U.S. was one of the safest places to invest in the world to invest one's money, but to do so, one had to convert his native currency into dollars. These facts gave the U.S. dollar great value on international markets and more so than otherwise would have merited. So in spite of the fact that the Federal Reserve was creating huge amounts of money during this time, the demand for it by foreigners was seemingly limitless. The result is that America has continued to finance its trade deficit with fiat money, counterfeit, if you will, a feat which no other nation in the world could hope to accomplish. We have been told that our nation's trade deficit is a terrible thing and that it would be better to weaken the dollar to bring it to an end. Weakening the dollar is a euphemism for increasing inflation. In truth, America is not hurt by a trade deficit at all. In fact, we are the benefactors while our trading partners are the victims. 
We get the cars and TV sets while they get the funny money. We get the hardware, they get the paperware. However, there's a dark side to this exchange. As long as the dollar remains in high esteem as a trade currency, America can continue to spend more than it earns. But when the day arrives, as it certainly must, when the U.S. dollar tumbles and foreigners no longer want it, the free ride will be over. When that happens, hundreds of billions of dollars that are now resting in foreign countries will quickly come back to our shores as people everywhere in the world attempt to convert them into yet more real estate, factories, and tangible products, and to do so as quickly as possible before they become even more worthless. As this flood of dollars bids up prices, we will finally experience the inflation that should have been caused in years past, but which was postponed because foreigners were kind enough to take the dollars out of our economy in exchange for our products. The chickens will come home to roost, but when they do, it will not be because of the trade deficit. It will be because we were able to finance the trade deficit with fiat money created by the Federal Reserve. If it were not for that, the trade deficit could not have happened. So Interesting stuff, Kate. Um, I know there's a lot there. Do you have any uh, take on what you heard there? Is that? I mean, one thing to note, though, is that all of the other competing uh, currencies, including the, the German mark, which no longer exists because mm-hmm. it's going to the euro, and Japanese yen, they're not. They're they're neither backed by anything either. You know, so mm-hmm. we've got to consider that. And if you look at reserve currency rates, like the United States is still the dominant force. It's still like over sixty percent of all of the world's money in terms of um, being a reserve currency. Second only to the uh, no, first obviously, and then the second one is uh, the euro with about twenty percent. And then a basket of currencies between it. I think it is um, true. It's undeniable what was spoken there, but it's only as true as um, people in the public are aware of it. And I'll be honest, most people are completely oblivious and they will not even be able to comprehend a lot of the stuff um, that was mentioned in that short passage. Mm-hmm. Because um, money isn't necessarily something that people have ever sat down and thought about very deeply. Mm-hmm. They just think that that's what uh, the government says is is legal tender. Therefore, I'm going to use that, and that's about as deep as the thinking gets. Um, maybe sometimes if they go abroad, which for Americans tend not to really go abroad anyway, versus um, other countries... Um, then you might think about it. But now in, in the Eurozone, you just need Euros, so you don't really need to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, as a Brit, you can definitely tell when the pound is weak or strong, but not by much, honestly. Even like when you get stuff that often makes me laugh when they say it's slumped massively and really it's gone down like a couple of percentage points. Uh, this is referring to the pound against let's say the US dollar or the euro, they say it's often in financial times and uh, financial reports, they say it's a really heavily shocked system. But I think overall, uh, cryptocurrency is just as volatile relative to fiat money, that should be said. But um, let's get into some of the reasons why cryptocurrency is different from fiat money, maybe. We could discuss that. 
Yeah, definitely. I think that's next on the agenda. Um, well, yeah, I think we kind of mentioned this in a previous ap- episode, you know, um, cryptocurrencies that are backed by a hard asset, be it gold or platinum or silver or something else. But really, I think the big advantage of cryptocurrencies is, um, for one, they're very secure. You know, you could have them on your ledger or some other um, hardware wallet. You can have them on your phone. They're very portable. You don't need you don't need a sack of gold. You can transfer it anywhere with just an internet connection, and that um, there's a set amount. You know, the Bank of England can print more pounds. The U.S. can print more dollars. Um, pretty much any central bank can print whatever they want because I believe the U.S. was the last to go off the gold standard. So that's the reason why the U.S. dollar really hasn't collapsed. Is because it's a fiat. Uh, currency competing with other fiat currencies so they're kind of all like off in limbo so it's really hard to uh, exchange value for value just you know the only way to do it now is through uh, trade and the demand for dollars or the lack of demand for dollars and every other currency Mm. yeah it's really interesting i think that money we're reaching the precipice of what is going to be maybe uh like um paradigm shift especially with the Facebook money. I'm glad that we started on that with our first podcast that we did because it really brings to the forefront of your mind just how far we've come. We are living in a basically a globalized world now with um, being quite connected anyway, quite a connected world. And the next step seems to be a currency which can be used by everybody but it has to overcome a lot of the issues that are currently uh, that we are facing in the financial system. Mm-hmm. And also, we need to be careful that it's not controlled by just a different cartel. It might not be the financial banking system that is uh, the dominant cartel in the future. If it's mm-hmm. just going to be a different group of mega corporations that run the validator nodes, then it's not really solving the um, underlying problem it might be just solving the symptoms but it's not solving the underlying problem what do you think about that what's not solving the problem facebook um facebook's currency the libra because right now it is a really useful idea i think Mm -hmm. it's a really useful idea having currency that everybody can use and it's like the network effect is massive Mm-hmm. However, if you just replace the banking cartel with some big cartels in various fields that make up the, uh, you know, the Libra validator nodes, they all they think there's how many was it twenty or forty different? Um, I think it was a, a serious number of very big companies. They had to pledge at least ten million dollars each as validators. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember. And I don't know if it, even that's a number set in stone. But yeah, I, I want to say uh, maybe it was in the high teens or in the 20s. Um, so, so my point is the it hasn't solved anything by just um, switching away from fiat currency and then going to uh, Libra coin, which should, in theory, uh, solve some of the financial problems that we've experienced. But in many ways, we're just going to be switching at masters. You know, we're going to get away from the central banks, but now we're just going to switch to centralized, massive techno uh, companies, fintech companies, and 
and businesses that are huge. So it's, yeah. it might even be worse. Yeah, I think we kind of talked about this in the Libra episode. But yeah, I mean, the Libra coin is basically kind of a stable coin that's really just a basket of fiat currencies. And apparently they're just going to adjust it to kind of keep it kind of stable. Um, yeah, so I'm not super hot on it. Like I said in that episode, I think it mm-hmm. might take off in the third world where they really don't have um, a good uh local national currency or a national currency that can really maintain its value and it's not inflating as much even the uh, the u.s dollar inflates i think at about two percent a year so yeah i mean we could you're definitely right that um some of the cryptos are volatile um and you know bitcoin really doesn't function for small transactions anymore some people still use it for larger transactions but um i think you know the market's going to solve it you know um there's a bunch of different uh, stable coins and you know buoyant coins that are supposed to you know maintain their value even relative to a basket of goods not relative to the dollar and I, and I think they um, you know with other things that maybe are more volatile um, I think it might take a while but I think the volatility will kind of smooth out but until then you might transition from maybe you're a big Bitcoin holder you might trend you know Use some of it to buy a stable coin and then, you know, hop back into Bitcoin back and forth and just use something else for transactions or, you know, Dash or Bitcoin Cash or Monero or Digibyte flatten out and become popular and get real adoption. I think it won't be an issue. The volatility won't be as big of an issue, but I think that's going to take time and the volatility will never completely go away, just like it never goes away with um, fiat currencies. But I don't think you're going to see these huge price spikes and uh, dips. And that's right now because people are speculating um, and they're seeing it as a store of value and as as an investment. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. there there are some problems to solve, but I think in the end, crypto is going to solve them. Well, yeah, speculation is massive in cryptocurrency. I think it's one of its best used cases right now is speculation, um, which is pretty interesting. Richard Hart, I think we mentioned him last week. He's got a really good um, YouTube channel and also Twitter handle. Twitter. Uh, so if you check out his Twitter feed, he has some interesting commentary, which I always find amusing and entertaining. Check him out as well. Um, some of the other books that you know we have shaped our economic thought, should we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, we can talk about books and just um, maybe economic minds and people we really like. Um, yeah, I think we share a few in, in common. I'll name a few and maybe you can name a few. Um, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, so uh, Milton Friedman, um, he's a famous Austrian economist. Economist, uh, I know we both love him. And uh, actually, after reading The Creature from Jekyll Island, I looked more into Ron Paul. And he's a politician and someone who's really into auditing the Fed and having sound money and he believes in hard, you know, asset-backed currencies, and I'm not exactly sure what his position on crypto is, but those are some of those are a couple names I would throw out there. How about you? Well, Ron Paul's interesting because he is a big fan of uh, gold, but also he's quite a big fan of freedom above all else. So he's, he doesn't understand why the government wants to be in everyone's lives, and if people want to use Bitcoin as a medium of um, exchange, then or any other cryptocurrency, then the government shouldn't be determining what is and what isn't legal because he's been a a big supporter of other projects like the Liberty Dollar, for example, which was um, 
an attempt by um, a group of people that are talking about this very issue that we've been discussing. And they tried to come up with an alternative to the Federal Reserve dollars and come up with the Liberty dollar, which was a silver-backed currency in the United States. That didn't go down too well with the authorities. Um, some of the other people that I've um, you know, read or found um, some of my key points from, it was actually a book I read a long time ago, and it's about John Law. And John Law was basically a Scottish... Uh, economist in the early 16th century, so in the 1700s, and he was a gambler he, and a bit of an adventurer. Some called him a charlatan, um, and he was a bit of a playboy as well. He traveled around extensively around Europe, um, and he came up with fiat currencies, um, but backed by arable land, and he basically sold this um, concepts to the French and he became extremely wealthy during that period and he had a like crazy playboy lifestyle he was locked up in various countries and escapes and all this stuff pretty good book if you ever get your hands on um, on his life story John Law and then if you think about more recently um, Milton Friedman you mentioned him and then if you look at the Mises Institute Ludwig von Mises and Mm-hmm. the people that follow him and then if you look at the like um the people like thomas sowell he's pretty interesting basic economics that's a, like a book that can completely change your outlook on the way that the world works um also henry Hazlitt, which is economics in one lesson you could literally read the first chapter and be more well informed about economics than most people walking around in the street and there's a really good site that i can recommend too it's called mru.org, mru.org. Um, I think it's got, sounds like Micro Revolution University or something like that. Mm-hmm. Marginal Revolution University, sorry. And um, they basically have a huge library of videos and um, that covers everything from, you know, exploring equilibrium to wage subsidies. Every, honestly, everything about economics can be covered here. Nice. Microeconomics, macroeconomics, um, everything is brilliant. So definitely recommend that. And you can learn a lot from the internet these days. I mean, there are so many great re- resources available online. Yeah, I, I agree with all of your uh, recommendations, like Ludwig von Mises and the Austrian School of Economics. Yeah, I think they have a pretty good website, too. I don't know if it's Mises.com or Mises.org or something. And yeah, mm-hmm. Thomas Sowell, I love his take on it. And also, I love Thomas Sowell's take on politics, too, and uh, um, where you know where the U.S. is and victimology and stuff like that. I think he's really a great guy, kind of pushing back against uh, you know the wrong message that's being spread out there. Well, yeah, the same wrong messages were being spread for a long time, you know, and um, it was in the '80s when Sowell and also um, Friedman would basically go on TV and debate college students, and this was back. Uh, well, they wouldn't debate college students. They'd go and give a lecture, and then the college students could ask questions in the Q&A at the end. And, but it would be um, you know, publicly available to attend, and uh, it would be televised. <clears throat> and this was back when college students could actually you know, form a coherent argument and <laughs> listen, listen to a coherent you know, 
um, answer and then say, oh, thanks, you. I'm enlightened now. But now we're at this point where um, Thomas Sowell must completely confuse uh, many people in in American campuses because of his his uh, you know his, his ethnicity. They would just be they would just automatically assume that he'd have one position and uh, probably admit him on that alone to um, you know talk at the university without really looking into what he was going to say. And then once he started to speak, they'd quickly escort him out of the room because it doesn't really fit in with their narrative now. So. Let's keep this uh, crypto podcast mainly crypto, though. Um, and I think, though, many people listening to cryptocurrency podcasts are already of the pers- the persuasion, which is uh, freedom, capitalism, and free markets really help everyone. And um, cryptocurrency is one of the things that can really bring this debate back into not only the university sphere, but back into the mainstream because it gets people thinking about finances in a different way. Um, This type of education was available again in the 80s and people discussed it thoroughly. And you had, you know, people like uh, the people we've mentioned already going around and discussing it openly and it became, you know, obvious to people. And then we've kind of lost our way a little bit and and, um, I think we need to re- establish the narrative or bring back the facts in, and fight this narrative that is currently going on. Yeah, definitely. And it, it actually, it's uh, he does, Tom Saul doesn't do a lot of interviews these days. He's getting up there in age. But mm. yeah, if you can go back and find the old YouTube videos, whether it's debating with college students or even debating with uh, the interviewer or the moderator, there's definitely some really great like Jordan Peterson, Kathy Newman-esque like moments that'll just leave you laughing and you'll just can't believe it but uh yeah i think um kind of when you go back to ron paul um how intellectually consistent he is you know um the thing about crypto is you know i like crypto i think you like crypto a lot of people like it no one's forcing you to use it i think the big issue is we don't want people we don't want governments to ban it or say you can't use it it can't be used as a means of exchange you know if you don't like crypto don't use it but don't stop other people from using it yeah definitely it's about freedom it's about the idea of well it's a bit libertarian in in its sense some could some people say it's more classical liberal whatever you want to call it it's basically the idea that you know as long as you're doing what you're doing and the other people that you're, you know, working with or um, interacting with are also doing so voluntarily and there's no coercion involved, then there should be no problem. So that's an interesting thing. Another great uh, channel I could recommend is The Academic Agent, which is a very uh, new little trendy channel, I would say. It's by a British academic university lecturer and he lectures on economics in in universities around London he doesn't out himself um, his name he just lets people know that that's what he does as as a profession but now he's started to publish several of his um, lectures online a bit like Jordan Peterson did but rather than for I think Peterson's more uh, philosophy or even just critical thinking and um, psychology, clinical psychology, I think Peterson is. 
this guy, Academic Agent, is very much about um, economics and politics. And a lot of the books that he recommends are very much in the, um, the way of what we are discussing right now. Discussing like basic economics by uh, Sowell and economics on one lesson by Henry Hazlitt. And actually on his channel, the first channel that you would, um, the first video you'd see on his channel is called uh, Ultimate Red Pill Books. And that's where he discusses. I think it's about 12 different books that you could read that will really um, thoroughly shake your worldview and um, the way that you perceive the world after reading it. And uh, But give you a more sturdy and thorough foundation of which to build your actual belief system upon. Because what a lot of um, people, one of the problems I see, honestly, when I come back to the UK and try and debate with people, about almost anything, because I've been living in South Korea for, well, I've been living in Asia for more than 10 years and South Korea for the better part of eight years. Um, when I debate with people in the United Kingdom, they're almost like don't know even, even how to form a proper argument anymore. They're just regurgitating stuff that they've heard from whatever their favorite channel is or whatever their newspaper is that they read without really considering their argument and without being really comfortable to explore the ideas a bit further. Uh, without getting emotional and that's not something that you really want to do when you're just like meeting someone at a wedding party or something you just mm -hmm. discuss briefly uh, how is it going uh what do you think about i don't know the incoming new prime minister and they just start basically having verbal diarrhea and you ask all right why do you believe that what is the reason that you hold this view for and they just go down in a very aggressive negative tone of um well basically expletives without any reasoning and then if you say well what about this what's your policy on that and they're just like i don't know yeah so, yeah, it's, I, a bit, yeah. It's, a bit, it's a bit worrying that this is uh, the state of affairs really yeah i mean that could be about politics it could be about crypto i mean i've heard so many people talk oh crypto is bad because of this this and this and this they don't even know what crypto is or how it works or what are the use cases or what are the other arguments. I think whenever you disagree with someone, you should at least understand the other person's side. And yeah, I've had the same thing, whether it's talking about crypto or finance or politics. Yeah, they don't really have arguments. You know, emotion isn't an argument and they don't really have any evidence to back up their feelings. And I think a lot of people they loan out their cognitive faculties to someone else. They just, like you said, they just repeat whatever they hear on the TV, on in the newspaper. Um, when you, they receive um, information that's contrary to it, they just completely discount it out of hand for no reason. Because, yeah, I think you'd be surprised the amount of people that are unable to think and just, are, just have a herd mentality and they don't know how to um, look at things from a different side or even be open-minded enough to do it yeah and honestly it takes um it takes a lot of guts to be to admit that you don't know something as well like um there are a lot of sub subjects that we talk about on this show that we do know about but of course if somebody asked us about you know quantum physics or something for us to pretend that we knew about that would be preposterous so the right thing for us to do would be to concede, actually, no, no, nothing about that. Please let me um, let me be informed. Teach me about it. Tell me something interesting about it. But um, what's fascinating is that people have deeply held beliefs, obviously, at least connected to their feelings. 
get them very upset. But then when you ask them to just, you know, just explain them coherently, they get even more defensive and upset about it, So, which actually betrays the fact that they don't really know anything about it, which is very unfortunate. Imagine if you lived your life basically as a zombie without even examining any of your own internal thoughts or um, having any reason for your beliefs. It must be mm-hmm. quite must be quite a terrible place to be in anyway. Yeah. All right, well, so. <laughs> let, let, let's end with a little economics lesson and a little uh, I'll play devil's advocate here. Um, and then we'll uh, maybe call us, you know, close this episode out. So, uh, sure. Uh, so, Josh, uh, let's just debate uh, U.S. economic policy. So a lot of the Democratic candidates are proposing a $15 minimum wage and Kamala Harris just upped them and proposed a $20 minimum wage. Well, Josh, why can't we just have a $50 minimum wage so everyone can be at least upper middle class? Yeah, we should just make the minimum wage $100 an hour, and then we would have no poverty at the end. What, you're so, saying you're, you're against it? Is that sarcastic, Josh? Yeah. Are you saying you don't care about poor people? Well, this is the, the great irony as well, because um, this is often the emotive thing is, well, you don't care about poor people. Look at the Socialist countries like in Scandinavia, they always say that. Actually, if you look at Scandinavian countries, they don't have a minimum wage. There's no national minimum wage in these countries. Um, They just happen to have a very dynamic market economy. So people get paid um, relative to their skills and they focus on skills. If you also look at um, even the United Kingdom and the United States, if you look at people actually earning the minimum wage, there are in the UK, it's like 3% of all workers are on minimum wage. Mm-hmm. So 97% of people have managed to figure out how to earn more than the minimum wage. Now, the minimum wage, in theory, just sounds like a nice idea. But in reality, it actually prevents people whose labor is not worth the minimum wage from even participating in the economy. Now, one, someone might say, that is terrible. How could you say someone isn't worth... Um, the minimum wage. Well, you've got to, you've got to actually draw a line somewhere, and it has to be to do with economic output. The employer has to make a profit from hiring someone, unless and if they don't, they're not running a business; they're running a charity. So, aside from charity work, which is usually done voluntarily anyway for free by good-hearted people that want to contribute to good causes, if you are employed by someone. There is entailed in that agreement that you're going to bring a positive return for your employer on your labor. Now, if you can't actually muster more than the minimum wage in terms of your own productivity, then you won't be employed. So having a minimum wage might, in fact, inhibit some people that can't be productive to earn uh, that. And then the alternative as, as well is employers might feel that the new minimum wage doesn't match their expected earnings therefore they're losing money so if you look at what's happened in some of the states that have introduced a higher minimum wage in um let's say for example i think it's california that was it washington seattle washington I yeah don't know. actually some cities have done it so seattle i think they implemented the 15 dollars minimum wage <laughs> and a lot of yeah. restaurants just fled to the suburbs over the city line yeah or they're just instead of having um, humans, they just got more of those automated robot ordering machines. Uh, not robots, they're just screen panels. They're very basic 
Like you can get these screen panels. They're just an iPad basically with one app installed on them, essentially, um, which is very simple for people to do now. Oh, sorry, someone with a motorbike is uh, whizzing past the window. Um, So all it's going to do is, unfortunately, result in the opposite effect of what people are trying to achieve. I know that these people are good. They are well-intentioned when they try and make these policies. They, they have the they have the the, um, the good of the population in their hearts. They just don't understand the economics. That's the problem. Yeah, Josh, did you hear that blockade is running as the crypto libertarian candidate for Rhode Island? Really, I didn't know that. But are you? Yeah, and one of the number one thing on my platform is a minimum wage of sixty-five thousand. Bitcoin cash Satoshi's an hour. That's my only thing on my platform. <laughs> Are you running as a serious candidate or just running as like the equivalent of the monster raving Luna Party in the UK? Because in the UK we have a part <laughs> we have a party called the Monster Raving Looney Party. And um they always have a candidate and they just put in nonsense policies <laughs> for a lap. <laughs> no, I, I'm not I'm not running. I'm too busy doing crypto stuff. And honestly, true libertarians um often just don't really get involved in the political system. Um, if, if you look at Harry Brown, who wrote the book, um, he wrote the, a great book. It was called How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World. And that was one of the most uh, paradigm-shifting, inspiring, inspirational, like great books that I've ever read. I also read that about 15 years ago. It's free online. Um, that you can find it is now dead. He was basically saying, don't even think about like getting involved with politics, wasting your time on it, trying to convince people that they're right or wrong. The only thing that you can really control is your own life. Focus on that. Try and do the best you can. If the government, you know, is uh, preventing you from doing stuff, try and go around them, try and avoid them. Don't fight them head on because you just, it's a, it's a never ending uh, uphill battle. But the great sadness is that he actually then went against his own advice and spent a, a good portion of his later years of his life trying to um, make the Libertarian Party into some kind of a force in the United States. And he ran for president several times to no avail. So he didn't really heed his own advice. So if I were you and if um, you were considering like running for office, I'd say, don't bother really you're fighting a two-party system it's too entrenched yeah think no, about it, other it ways to um you know leverage your life and maximize your own life josh you know how i'm going to change the world <laughs> i don't know man with the dark side of the hodl moon podcast well it's a very noble goal and let's hope that we meet uh we do reach the uh, 100 episode mark um in the next year or two That'd be great. Definitely. All right, Josh. Well, I don't think we have anything more to talk about. Um, this is Blockade with Josh Igo, and we'll see you next week on the dark side of the HODL moon. Thank you for joining us on Dark Side of the HODL moon. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Also, be sure to join our Telegram group, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and follow us on BitChute and YouTube, where you can find all the episodes as well as highlights from previous episodes. You can also visit us at darksideofthehodlmoon.com. Hodlmoon!